Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant author Gretchen Rubin, who is one of our most trusted tour guides for making sense of ourselves and the wider world. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally, Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. So one of the things I learned, I explored in Life in Five Senses was the value of boredom. Because when you're bored and when your mind is just kind of running free and trying to amuse itself, you'll often have insight. And that's why people have ideas in the shower or when they're walking the dog or something, when, when, when there's nothing occupying them, that's when our brain can kind of come, come up with these new, new insights. So I was walking through the mat, I was in a very familiar place, so I was a little bored. And that's when I realized my, and, and kind of the way I thought of it was, the beautiful often requires a little bit of ugly. And with it, it was like, and being systematic, I'm like, you say that, but how do you back that up? And I could think of one for each sense because it does turn out that often the beautiful does require a little bit of what might be considered ugly. And that is part of, like, as you say, the complete picture. And whether that is adding, and when I, I took a perfume class as part of my sense of smell study, and the, and our professor had said that, like, often a beautiful perfume will have some bad, you'll smell it and you would be like, ooh, that smells bad. And yet it makes the perfume more beautiful. Gretchen Rubin is an author, podcast host, and self-improvement expert who has written many New York Times bestsellers, including one that hit number one, The Happiness Project, where Gretchen performed what she has now perfected, using herself as a lab through which to study how principles from throughout time act on us and inform our understanding of the world. She extends this point of view into her podcast, The Happiness Project with Gretchen Rubin, 
where she offers actionable daily strategies for cultivating joy and well-being, along with her sister. Today, we discuss her newest book, Life in Five Senses, which explores the powerful impact of embracing the world through sensing it rather than thinking about it. It's a book about experiencing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Through her extensive research and personal insights, Gretchen found that tuning into these senses provides relief from internal chaos while fostering our connection with the external world. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Like you, I like thinking about systems and or like bigger containers for for our life experiences. And so anything I can do to keep doing that is what yeah. I'm interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You you're you're paving the way for the rest of us. Oh <laughs> I do like to experiment with new forms. That's very true. I'm always kind of intrigued. But your brain seems to work. Like you 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 just seem inherent. I mean, obviously we were talking about how you love organizational tools and I know you love your different colored markers, but it seems to be how your brain it works as well. I really love like to think systematically and to put things into categories and sort of steps and and I'll write if something's important to me, I'll write a manifesto for it or I'll write my list of personal commandments and when I was studying listening, I wrote a manifesto manifesto for listening because I really do find that that helps me think. And it is something that kind of lends itself, I think, to other forms of media because it, it's trying to be crystallized. So it's kind of like, oh, I read all that research and all those big studies and every and all that philosophy and stuff. So you don't have to. I'll, I'll, I'll crystallize <laughs> it and give it to you. Collate it, yeah. Distill it. No, I'm kind of I very the ben much Franklin. I would say, you know, I'm very practical in my approach. Yes, you're certainly more. Pra- you're on the practical end of the spectrum. I tend to be more on the spiritual woo-woo side of the spectrum. But together, together we meet somewhere in the yep. middle. But I, <laughs> where have you always been like this? Like as a child, is this? Were you trying to understand the world through buckets? Well, one thing I would say is back to, I don't know, being six or seven years old, certainly as soon as I learned to read, I have had this habit of becoming intensely interested in a subject and then doing tremendous amounts of reading and research and and note taking about it. Like I have this notebook about the Salem witch trials that I did when I was really small because I got very, very interested in that. And that is something that's continued through my life. I don't know that I was systematizing it as much. Maybe law school did that for me, made me want to get really kind of like orderly in my thinking because it definitely trains you in that way. But it it, it is the way I never know what I think about something until I write about it. And often when I'm writing about it, I'll have all these I'll have just, you know, hundreds of pages of notes. And then all of a sudden I'll start to think, okay, how can I organize this? Like to understand it, I kind of have to put it in some sort of order. And and a lot of times that's one of the most intellectually demanding things is realizing like, well, how would you organize this? Like what structure makes sense? And then that's when I feel like I'm really starting to get a grasp of the subject. So I do love that stage. It's super creative and challenging. Yeah. No, I'm with you. It's in it's sort of in this like holding your hand up to feel the wind and understand the information or parse the information and then like the really co- sort of compulsive organizational sorting and filing. I love that stuff too. It's like the I I operate on two extremes. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> funny because with with all of my my structures of my book, I think if you look at the book you're like, "Well, this is just the most obvious structure. She spent no time on this at all." But in fact, it was like months of work. And with my book Life in Five Senses, you're like, Okay, like the kindergarten senses, see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and that's her structure. I don't think that took her any time. She could just pick up a board book and do that. No, I had, was it going to be nine senses? Was it going to be 11 senses? I was going to have my own senses. Then my daughter was like, I think you just need to talk about five senses. Then I wrote a whole draft that was five senses plus the sensorium, which is the five senses considered together. And that was like a whole thing. And my editor was like, you know, when I get to the fifth sense, I kind of feel like it's ready to be done. I'm like, okay, I, yeah. here we go again. So after months and months and months <laughs> and like so much on the cutting room floor, I'm left with the literal like back to Aristotle. Like that was yeah. his list. That is my list. <laughs> well, what I liked about the book too is it sort of accordions 
in and out. Maybe that's the right sentence. And we'll go into each of the senses, but it's sort of this extreme distillation or exposure through each sense. And then you're pulling out again because the senses mean nothing without context. And I loved that, that sort of throughout the book, you're underlining that our culture, our personal preferences, our innate biology, our minds give context to these senses. And so it's sort of this in and out and in and out in a way that I also tend to think. Well, one of the things that just astonished me most is, I mean, I think all everyone kind of intellectually would agree, yes, we all live in a, our unique sensory world and, you know, yeah, maybe you've lost a little hearing or whatever, and they're all kind of different, but it's bonkers how different they are. I mean, you just... I am just astonished over and over again because the brain tells my brain tells me what I need to know. Your brain tells me what it thinks you want to know. And this can be very different. And the most stark example of this was you can appreciate this. I was recording a podcast in my apartment for some reason. And all of a sudden, the interviewer was like, OK, let's wait. I was like, wait, what What do you why? And she said, don't you hear it? And then I could hear that a siren was going right by my my right by my windows but i my brain hadn't told me and she said oh yeah new york city they never hear the sirens in la mm-hmm. they don't hear the helicopters totally or the right? leaf blowers your brain yeah just just <laughs> says we don't need this let's just fade this into the background yeah i loved that anecdote from the book and i also think you know it's so these are the thing i am also interested in in some ways, what's obvious, but that is so obvious it becomes imperceptible yes, or invisible yes, to us. Yes, yes. Yeah. I very much feel that way about my book, too, that people will read it and be like, oh, yeah, of course. It's yes. about the seven deadly sins plus sadness because that was on the original list and then was dropped. But you start actually checking it across your experience and you're like, oh, my God, yes. yes. How did I not see this as a system? That- Yes, that's my most satisfying kind of read when I feel that shock of recognition. I'm like, this was just on the edge of my understanding. Somebody finally kind of put it into words. I find that just I love that as a reader. Yes, same, same. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetleton oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP-verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. So with, with your book, you write, you said, 
I'd been treating my body like the car my brain was driving around town, but my body wasn't some vehicle of my soul to be overlooked when it wasn't breaking down. My body, through my senses, was my essential connection to the world and to other people. And yes, that's so rudimentary, and yet something I think we completely overlook. Like our body, I would give this a spiritual sense. It's our way of understanding and experiencing the world and yet we're sort of like, oh, my body. Like, I'd yeah. much rather live in my brain, right? Or be somewhere else. <laughs> or or we just do it without without realizing it, which is, I, I wasn't sort of, I just, like, without, because I wasn't paying enough attention to my body, I just let it, I, I was just taking it for granted. Yeah, I think it is, it's mm-hmm. very hard, hard to, it's very easy to get pulled into your head and get stuck yes. there. Yeah. yeah. And the world is so overwhelmingly stimulating that it feels really hard to parse any of these any of these systems. And so I like the idea that you went intensely into each sense one at a time, but all again through like an organizing principle of going to the Met. Are you still going to the Met every day? I do. I just came back from there a few minutes ago. Yes. <laughs> I think I'll do it for the rest of my life, or at least as long as I live. I'm so lucky that I live within walking distance of the Met. So I I kind of think that I'll keep doing it until I move because I love it so much. What is your process now? Do you go and just visit one piece or do you go do what's your how do you do it? Right. Well, so for Life in Five Senses, I decided that one of my exercises was going to be to visit the Met every day because I'm very interested in repetition. And familiarity, I've always been very drawn to that. Andy Warhol writes a lot about repetition and and familiarity. I've always been fascinated by that. So it's like, well, how would the Met change if I went every day? So I really don't have any expectations of myself. I don't have to stay a certain amount of time so I can walk in and walk out if I want to. I've done that a few times when I was like, I had a lot to do. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in and then I'm going to leave right away. I'll see what the flowers are today. And then sometimes I stay a long time. Sometimes I visit my favorites. Sometimes if I'm reading a book, I'll go look up something that was in the book. For President's Day, I was like, I wonder what presidents are in the the Met. And just today I was like, how many images of pregnant women are in the Met? (laughs) Right? I was like, I can't, I can only think of one off the top of my head. I'm like, I'm going to look around for that. So sometimes I'll give myself like a little mission. Sometimes I do something called Met Roulette. I bought a big book of about the Mets collection and I'll open it at random, pick an image. And then the first thing to do is to see, can I remember where it is or can I figure out where it should be and then challenge myself to go see it? And then I read up on it first. So that's kind of a way to make it fun. When Pantone, it's, it's color of the year. I took a swatch, you know, on my phone, I had a swatch of it. And then I went around the Met to see where I could find it. That was super fun. And sometimes I'll go with a friend or sometimes I'll say to a friend, what's your favorite thing? And I'll go look at that. So I have all different kinds of ways to make it fun, but I don't have any rules around it. Part of what I want was this for, was this to be recess for me, that it could just be this playful, open time where I could just kind of ramble around and, and not expect myself to be productive or efficient or accomplish anything or check anything off a list. I did feel a little restless until I had really gone through the whole museum one time, until I'd really systematically, back to systematically, gone through every gallery, kind of looked at, you know, you can't look at every object because some are like these crowded, crowded study rooms, but pretty much looked at every, certainly looked in every gallery at for, you know, at, at length and, you know, read the signage. And then once I did that, then I was like, okay, now I can just, you know, freestyle. Yeah. I love that. I find whenever I go to a museum, I'm so immediately overwhelmed that I mm. can't can't spend that much time. But I like the idea of actually, of course, engaging like more fully and not moving so fast is what I find myself doing, in part to be like, I need to see everything. Well, I, that's why it's so great to go every day, because it takes off all that pressure. I know exactly what you mean, where you're like, I'm, I'm at the Louvre. I need to see everything. You're like, OK, that's not going to happen. But there is sort of this pressure not to miss anything. And when mm-hmm. you go every day, it's like, you know, I got nothing but time. Like I could stand here in front of this porcelain statuette all day long and I'm just coming back tomorrow. So I think it, I think that is a big part of why it changed the experience because it took off the pressure of like needing for it to be kind of a complete experience or stand, you know, 
kind of sum it up. It was just it, it, the it, the expectations are so low for any one day th- that I think that's what made it kind of more leisurely and playful as well. Yeah. I love that idea as much. It's not accessible to me, obviously, here, but even just walking and paying a little bit more attention like you, it's just hard. It's hard. No, it's when hard I asked around, a lot of people, I was surprised. I thought I was the only one that had this impulse to do the same thing every day, but many people, it turns out, share it. A walk is a very common thing, like to walk to one place and back always the same way. So you're seeing that tree come into bloom and then drop its leaves or you're watching a building being built or, you know, you're just seeing how the natural world is changing over time. Somebody said they went to their CVS every day. And I thought I could really get into that because, you know, there's a lot happening in drugstores. I think they're fascinating kind of cultural artifacts. They change They change a lot through the seasons. You can see what the people are doing. I thought that could be really interesting or just walking through your neighborhood. You know, I think things really do reveal themselves differently through repetition. But as you say, what's familiar is so easy to ignore. And so if you do something very purposefully every day, I think it, it kind of reminds you, okay, pay attention. How is this day different from the day before? And there, there's sort of a, it just changes when you do something every day. You notice things in a different way. I'm with you in terms of my love for repetition. And I, it's funny, people will ask me, because I used to be, you know, I used to work more in trend spotting and taste making and novelty. Sure. And yeah. I have fashion, comp- what's new fashion. Yeah. And like writing a month, you know, writing column for magazines and covering markets. And now it's funny, I went shopping for the first time in probably four years yesterday with a friend. And I was like, I have no idea. Like, what is everyone doing out here? And yeah. what are the shapes? And I otherwise, I'm very restrictive, actually, about what I do. And I go to the same places. And I don't know if that's just like the boringness of middle age and on. I always felt like in my 20s, I wanted to taste everything, try everything, wear every trend. And now I am in a different phase. But what is there science about that? Well, about it's interesting. That? It's interesting that you mentioned <laughs> t- 25, because one of my little hacks for everybody is try by 25. If you are a young person, try it now, because research suggests that if you haven't tried a food and enjoyed it, or, you know, listen to a genre of music. By the time you're 25, you probably will not enjoy it. Speaking for myself, growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, back in the day, I didn't try sushi until I was well into my late 20s. And I never really have acquired a taste for sushi, whereas everybody around me loves sushi. And so I think it's actually a really good idea when when you're young, if you have that impulse towards novelty, because you'll sort of expand your reach and kind of maybe expand the limits of what you will naturally enjoy. I have to say, even as a young person, I was not like that. I've always loved familiarity and repetition. I've always had a fairly narrow band. I really only liked reading and writing and talking to my friends. (laughs) I don't have many, I don't have many interests. And so I think for me, the pull towards familiarity and repetition was especially strong. But I I also think it gets a bad rap. It's true that the research shows that people who do new things and challenging things tend to be happier. But I do think there is a special pleasure in things that we repeat that I I think shouldn't be shouldn't be dismissed as easily as I feel like some people do. No, it's true. And I think I hope it provides comfort. I think that people I think you can also pick a couple of spheres in which to enjoy novelty. And then otherwise, the pressure to just change or do something different all the time, I think is part of the reason that we all feel like we're being driven insane. Like I think familiarity and routine is grounding and comfortable. Like I I think about what I read, I read incredibly widely. And let my mind go all over the place following various pursuits and interests. And so I've kind of decided to let myself off the hook that, no, I'm not going to go and stand in line for like the new bread place or I'm not going to try a different yoga class. Like I just mm. like what I like and I'm I'm accepting that about myself now in my 40s in a way that I think I was trying to push myself towards new things and up and up through my 30s. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Right. Like maybe we need a balance in our life. I mean, one thing I noticed is, you know, the office is so 
popular and yeah. I love The Office. I mean, everything in my life, I'm like, do you know what? This is a game I play with my daughters. I'm like, <laughs> what episode, what, what, like, what scene in The Office am I thinking of right now? And they're like, oh, it's when Jim covered the the desk in wrapping paper, but it actually wasn't there or whatever. But I think it's like comfort watching. I think it's sometimes when people are really stressed out, they want to go back to something where they kind of already know what's going to happen. They know the characters, they know the plot, they know the funny lines. And if they're com if they need comforting, that's kind of it's it's a it's a way. I will often reread my favorite books from childhood. I love children's literature and young adult literature, and I read new works in that area all the time because I love it. But I also go back and will reread my favorites when I need just sort of like a little bit of like a little bit of soothing or or you yeah. know I, I don't want the I don't want the the kind of the surprise and the challenge that comes from tackling you know a contemporary novel that I've never read before. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I am. It is soothing and it is comforting, and I think we all need those touchstones. Maybe we don't all, but I. I That's um... a good word. I never thought. Okay, I just wrote this whole book, Life in Five Senses, and I've been thinking about <laughs> all the ways that we invoke them metaphorically in our speech, and I miss touchstone. How did I miss that? Okay, I'm writing a note to myself right now because it is because it's like the touchstone. It's like the thing that you know. Yeah. It's like we come back to our senses, right? Yes. 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 I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Dot com. Okay, so you start with seeing, right? And we talked a little mm -hmm. bit about that. But this idea of color, one, I didn't know you could actually turn your whole screen black and white on your phone. That's a yes. great tip for people. Did you try it? It's bonkers. No. <laughs> but I need when to. I was, because... <laughs> when I was recording my audiobook, my engineer did it while, while like, on the break. He was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I want to do that. I mean, yeah. I like the idea of making these things that I find irresistible less tantalizing, right? Because so it's still useful. Yeah. And so it's grayscaling your phone, right? Yes. You just do it in settings. You go to, you know, color. You just put on the color filter of grayscale and it turns it to black, white, and gray. And you can easily turn it off and on again. And drive by hack. If you have a child who kind of refuses to give up a device, you can change it to grayscale and just tell them that it's broken and you don't know how to fix it. 
and they will not probably not want to use it nearly as much. Partly it's harder to use a phone that's in grayscale. You know, color is very functional for us as well as being enticing. And it's much harder to use all of the, you know, all the apps and everything. And certainly looking at photos if they're in black and white. It's like watching, you know, an old black and white TV set. It's just, yeah. it's just harder to make it out. So that's a very easy way that you can use technology to help yourself master technology. Um, yeah. So you're the boss. Such- such a good tip. I loved your exploration of this idea of color too and and the way that we think that the what it signals to us is universal and yes. and yes. also you said red is the color of love and hell, protection and danger, violence and joy. Black is used for sexy lingerie as well as morning clothes. It's the color of the plain and the luxurious. It's so true. I had never really thought about the way that these colors can I think we reduce them to one thing often, right? And yet, it's well, one a thing I've noticed, sort of in my general study of human nature, is that people love correspondences. They really want to be told that this is that. If you're mm-hmm. born in September, it means this. If you use blue, it means this. If you use lavender perfume, it means this. And a lot of times, these things are just what we bring to them. You know, they don't have a natural association. And then people will suggest a natural association. But what I was trying to say is like, yeah, but you could you could offer the opposite natural situation. Like mm-hmm. we talk about red hot, but actually blue is hotter than red. Mm. Wait, in terms of it's... Yeah, if you look at a flame. Now, it might be that you like I, I'm a very I'm very cold. And because I associate blues and like blue tones with being cold, I've noticed that in my in my home, I'm often att- attracted to like I have a red room. I have two purple rooms, you know, like mm. these warm colors, because that's what I bring as an association. But when it, what I learned is that's just that's just my cultural upbringing and my preferences. It's There's nothing natural about that or objective about that. Yeah. Is it speaking of natural, is it natural that we would just inherently project our understanding, how we codify the world onto everyone else? Yes. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible not to. And this is something that I I. I'm always catching myself doing in every like when when I was writing my book about habits, it took me a long time to realize like, hey, Gretchen, you're very idiosyncratic. Like what (laughs) works for you doesn't work for most people, by the way. You know what I mean? It's just so easy to think, well, what I experience is what you experience. And if it works for me, it'll work for you. And a lot of times these are just preferences and it's fine to say, well, one thing works for you and one thing works for me. I'm a simplicity lover and you're an abundance lover. If we work together, we have to figure out how to create an environment that suits us both. But that's different from me saying, hey, I have research showing that a a clean desk means a (laughs) clean mind and like you're going to be more creative. And you're like, no, no, no. I have research that shows that creativity is created by mess. It's like it doesn't like it's it's all what works for you, what works for the individual. And so same thing with sensory differences. It's like, take work. How do you like to work? If you're working, if you're writing, if like, let's say you're doing like original writing, which at least to me is like the most demanding. Do you like silence? Do you like music? Do you like mm-hmm. music with no lyrics? Do you like a busy hum? Do you like white noise? What's your acoustical environment that that's most produ- most conducive to productivity and creativity for you. So it depends on what I'm writing. If it's sort of busy work or ghostwriting or entering stuff in spreadsheets, I like to do it with the TV on. I know that sounds insane. Interesting. I get it. Yeah. It's kind of a little company. Yeah. A little company, a little background noise, like a little bit of distraction actually I think makes me a little bit more focused on what I'm doing. And then if I'm writing for myself, like my own book, or my newsletter, I have very specific playlists. And it's typically music without lyrics, mm-hmm. not silence. And then when I also write, I do walks. I puncture my writing time with walking, listening to music. And then I'm like, I just, again, try to focus on the music so I can let my unconscious brain put mm-hmm. things together for me. And then like mm-hmm. insights will punch through and I text them to myself. What's yeah. your process? Silence. Silence, like yeah, and it's interesting. Vacuum silence. My sister like, is a writer, and we both have to have silence. I can work in like a busy coffee shop if if that's just sort of what works. Like if I were working in an airport or something, that's fine with me. But I don't need that noise the way some people do. I would never listen to music. Never, never, never. Interesting. I was just reading Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, oh, and he sure. he writes yeah, and he writes about different musicians needing to write 
in different contexts from sort of the noise canceling vacuum to mm-hmm. multiple TVs on. It's really interesting. And I think his point is that you're accessing different parts of your brain. And I think it probably do you when you write, is it highly processed? Like when it comes out, have you distilled it and figured it out? Or are you more like almost channeling stream of consciousness and then you figure it out on the page? The way it works for me is I take notes. So I will take hundreds of pages of notes. And that is just very much like I open a book to page 116 that I marked with a sticky note and I'm like copying in, copying it in with a you know reference or I'm just like writing whatever occurred to me as I was reading it. So I have hundreds of pages of notes. Then as I said, I go and structure it. Then I dump the notes into that structure and then I start to knit it together. And so I'm never starting from zero. It's always like, mm-hmm. okay, I need to write an introduction. All right. Like I, these two ideas are connected. So like, okay. Or like I, this guy says this, this person says that, like, what do I think? And so it, for me, it's more about like kind of writing through it, kind of needing it in my mind. And then when I start it, I have to say, my strength as a writer is endings. I'm, I think I'm really good at writing endings. I don't know why this is, but like of all my books, like the last page is like by far my favorite in this (laughs) book. It actually has two endings, both of which I love and that I will like often I will be, it's like the whole book is done because it's the very last thing I write and it'll all be coming to me. And then like, I feel all the ideas coming together and then I will just sort of like right straight through and it was interesting in the audiobook like my my director didn't even stop me for like the last two pages it just like it just kind of poured out of me and so there I really do feel and then occasionally that happens to me like in bits and pieces where I'll have like a deep insight and I'll be like okay here it is it's all just gonna come right out but usually it's much more like like writing and editing also you know I was trained as a lawyer that's that that dies hard so That's I tough. usually go through and it's like the first time it's like, okay, what are you even talking about? Like, let's, 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 let's get clear here. Let's, let's take that language. So it takes me many, many, many passes through to get away from like the the heavy Latinate language that comes to me. Yes. That's a hard, that's a hard practice to break. I feel yeah. like when I went to magazines after Yale and being an English major, I cannot understand what I was writing about. I can't read it. It's so dense and so academic and full of really expensive words and learning how to write in a way that correlates with how people speak and sort of mm-hmm. understand information was a whole new education for me. And it was actually much harder. I think when it's clear, it's like your thoughts have to be clear. What you're saying has to be clear. When you're writing in a really kind of fuzzy, fancy way, you can kind of fake it. It, it, yes. it covers it covers fuzziness very easily. Yes. Yeah. Very no. much so. so. I think like having to really be very clear sometimes exposes that maybe you need to. Th- I often find like, well, I need to think a little bit harder because what exactly am I trying to say there? Oh, a thousand percent. That was my process with my book too. Was writing it. I mean, so much research, similar to you, like ec- extreme note taking and sort of codifying information and understanding what I was trying to say, then writing. And then it was a whole year of distillation and editing, clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. To make things simple and seem effortless is very difficult. And that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be a fun read. And so that took a year. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Well, it's funny because in every book, I'm like, there's the one section that was like, Oh my gosh, that was the hardest. And this one, there's like in it. So I go to the Met every day and I describe like being in the Moroccan court, which is this lovely little court that has a a fountain in it. And just describing the room and the fountain in a succinct but interesting way that didn't reuse the word splash. And it was just (laughs) like, for some reason, this thing just couldn't, I couldn't crack it. Yeah, And, you know, and it's, there's always, and then in one of my, my book, Happier at Home, there was a description of these wooden cogs that my parents gave my husband and me when we, a housewarming gift when we bought our apartment and describing these cogs, I guess I have trouble with description, but anyway, it's just funny how there are certain things. It's not necessarily what as a reader you would think would be the most tricky part 
sometimes those things you've thought about so hard, they, they kind of come easily. And it's these, these sort of incidental moments that end up being hard to convey in an elegant way that holds the interest of the reader. Well, it comes back to to the, the even the thesis of the book, which is trying to understand or pay attention to your likes or dislikes or these sensations of how you're experiencing the world and then understanding it, right? And yeah. then you're in a more meta way than articulating that. And I was talking to my friend on the podcast, This she's an artist, Alexandra Grant, and she was talking about sort of the music as she's making art. The museum in her mind, the piece in her mind, and then the way that she's like physically trying to bridge that or bring out what she sees, right? How difficult that is for any of us. And it's true of writing too. Like you have an idea, you it's clear to you, but to actually translate any of these things into something that anyone else can understand and come along with is hard, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the fun of it, but that's the challenge of it, yes. And here you're trying to explain sort of the way that we parse, our, use our senses to parse. I thought the listening part was really interesting, too. I'd never really thought about this, but I think we can all relate to this idea of new genres and music and how discordant and weird they feel to us. And then over time, through familiarity, it starts to feel... <laughs> poppy and fun and like I, I listened to back to some like you know music that I loved in my teenage years that at the time felt so edgy and now when I listen I'm like oh this is soft like this is nothing compared to sort of where we've evolved to now well look at the Beatles I mean they were considered so outrageous and now it's kind of like a lot of their songs are almost like lullaby music you know yeah Totally. Yeah. No, it's interesting how how our our tastes change over time. And yeah. With, with change. Yeah. I love the section too where you talk about music, and I'd never thought about. Can you tell us about the ways that background music, in particular, is used to manipulate us? Because now I'm yes. listening much more closely. Yes. Well, one thing that I realized. So one of the themes of the book is like realizing that we can affect, we can influence our sensory environments. Like I had just never thought about it very much, and so I've become much more interested in sort of trying to get things to suit my taste instead of just sort of letting it all wash over me, whether I like it or not. And one of the things is is restaurant music. And now I will av I will absolutely avoid a, a noisy restaurant. Like I consider the noise level of a restaurant just as significant as the food quality. You know, it's just it's a very important element to my enjoyment. And part of the reason they make it loud is that there's quicker turnover. People tend to eat. They tend to drink more. They tend to eat and drink faster when there's loud music playing. So they're doing this to turn the tables faster. Conversely, if you're in like a grocery store, they play slow music because that kind of slows people down. And what research shows is the longer longer that you spend in a store, the more you buy. So they're trying to get you to linger. You can also use music as kind of a way to force people out. So, you know, there were kind of chain stores that have used either playing classical music or Barry Manilow kind of on a loop to encourage people not to linger in front of the store. Or one of my favorite stories that I heard while I was working on this book was a friend of mine said that in college, he's a super social guy. He would throw these big parties and then people wouldn't get out of his room. So what he would do is he would play air supply singing, I'm all out of love on a loop. And then that would drive people home. So it's funny to think about how it is. It's a method of, of influencing us. But, it, but it's interesting, too. I was talking to a musician and he was saying how if there's music playing, it's very hard for him not to listen. And so for him... Just as for me, the noise of a restaurant is an is kind of an element of my enjoyment. He was saying that he's he's he is very influenced by like what is the specific music, and that mm. he often some places he liked because he liked their playlist, but then some places he didn't. But that he often did find it distracting because like he was tuning into it while other people in the conversation were sort of weren't focused on it, which certainly would have been me. So it's again, it's very interesting. Different people are picking up different cues from the environment and they are responding to it in different ways, which is one of the reasons, you know, sometimes people will come like, they'll have problems with something that you're like, this is no big deal. I don't know why you're complaining about that. Like you say, this sweater's scratchy. It's not scratchy. You say it's too hot. It's not too hot. You say this is too salty. It's not too salty. It's like, these are all like, we are so, there's so many things that make our responses different. We really need to remember that and 
accommodate other people as much as we can if they're having difficulties in an environment that we think is fine. Because just because I think it's fine doesn't mean somebody else thinks it's fine. Totally. And our certain preferences, right? I loved, I think it was in the chapter about taste when you went to, and you talk about sort of feeling like you don't have particularly evolved taste buds or like, it's just not your sense, right? And I loved how you went to the market downtown. Was it Essex Street Market? And you were like, I bought these. What were they? Like vinegar, cucumbers and vinegar. And your daughter was like, pickles? Yeah, I know. I was like, so crestfallen. I thought I was like, okay, I'm really going to push myself out of the comfort zone. I'm going to pick this thing from a cooler. You know, I'm just going to read the label and like, go for it. She's like, I think you got pickles. I'm like, I think I did. I think a pickled cucumber. I think I got pickles. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I enjoy the food that I enjoy more, but I would not say that I have come out of this experience kind of like a, with a, like a, a hugely an awakened interest in food. Cause as you say, that's kind of my neglect, my neglected sense is taste. It's something that has not really interested me. And it doesn't captivate me the way a lot, you know, people love new restaurants and new cuisines and new spices and going to farmer's markets and watching shows about people cooking. And that's not. Yeah. But do you, do you think that people can, I know you mentioned sort of this, this cliff that we walk off at 25, but do you feel like people can cultivate their sense? I mean, you certainly are doing it to some extent, at least like trying to taste different ingredients and complicated meals, et cetera. But do you feel like people can cultivate senses that are underdeveloped or do you think we're just innately engineered in one way or another? Oh, no, I think we absolutely can. And I think, in fact, that's almost like the low hanging fruit. Like it's almost in a way I would begin with your neglected sense because that's probably where you have the most room to grow. If you like, I love smell. I've always loved smell. I've always like been very tapped into smell. It was super exciting for me to like learn more about it and spend more time on it. But it was like, that was more of what I already knew. Whereas with taste, it was like, this was all new to me. This was like really exciting and energizing. Like I had a taste party with my friends and we all like, debated you know four four varieties of apples i found this like really exciting you know now did i 100 percent change myself so i'm like you know trying some completely unfamiliar cuisine and loving it the way some people love to do that no because i'm still kind of like i'm still gretchen but i definitely (laughs) found a lot more room within myself to experience it and enjoy it in a way that i hadn't before and i under and i understand my own preferences better one of the things I did is I just sort of always ignored it. This is true of me generally, but but maybe particularly in, in taste. I never really paid attention. So I like literally was like, what kind of cheese do I like? I didn't even yeah. know. I never paid attention to the types of cheese. I was like, sometimes it's kind of like this. Kind Sometimes it's kind of hard and rubbery. And then sometimes it's a little bit squishy. And I can, I remember brie. Okay. I remember brie. But other than that, I don't know. And then olives. I didn't realize that I didn't like Earl Grey tea. I was like, right. oh, I like English breakfast tea. I just I just would order willy-nilly. And I'm like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. What are you going to do? It's like, pay attention. So just training myself to pay attention and to like, and so I think actually your neglected sense in a way is is one of the most exciting things to think about and to explore because that's probably where you have the more the more room to kind of try something fun and exciting and that'll feel, that'll feel like, you know, the atmosphere of growth that you're really bringing something new to your life. Though on the other hand, it's like, I, I, and what I didn't even realize how much I loved the sense of touch. Again, I was so out of touch with myself. I didn't realize how important it was to me until I started studying it. And then I was like, wait, hang on. I'm Mm. really focused on the sense of touch. And then once I realized that, then of course I could, I could incorporate that into my life much more explicitly because I understood what an important element it was to me about even the clothes that I wore or didn't wear. I hadn't really noticed the patterns. One pattern mm-hmm. I noticed was that if it's a texture I don't like, I tend not to wear it, even if it looks good. And also if it's a beautiful color, I tend to buy it because I can't resist the beautiful color. But if it doesn't look good, I tend not to wear it. So I have a lot of like bad textures and beautiful clothes that are unworn. So now I know how to like, you know, steer like watch out for those temptations when I'm picking out something new to buy because I know that those are sort of traps that I fall into I over I overweight certain factors and don't consider other factors 
Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. One other part that I thought was really interesting was near the end, when you're talking about the importance of dissonance, ugliness, Mm -hmm. bad smells, that the complexity only comes through integration of those, I'd call them shadow elements or things that we think that we don't want. Can you explain that for people? Yeah, this was one of the, so one of the things I learned, I explored in Life in Five Senses was the value of boredom. Because when you're bored and when your mind is just kind of running free and trying to amuse itself, you'll often have insight. And that's why people have ideas in the shower or when they're walking the dog or something, when, when, when there's nothing occupying them, that's when our brain can kind of come, come up with these new, new insights. So I was walking through the mat. I was in a very familiar place. So I was a little bored. And that's when I realized my, and in kind of the way I thought of it was the beautiful often requires a little bit of ugly. And with it, it was like, and being systematic, I'm like, you say that, but how do you back that up? And I could think of one for each sense because it does turn out that often the beautiful does require a little bit of what might be considered ugly. And that is part of, like, as you say, the complete picture and whether that is adding. And when I, I took a perfume class as part of my sense of smell study and the, and our professor had said that like often a beautiful perfume will have some bad, you'll smell it and you would be like, Ooh, that smells bad. And yet it makes the perfume more beautiful or like Australia tried to come up with like, what is the ugliest color? Which is kind of a hilarious thing to try to come up with. But anyway, they were trying to make cigarette cigarette packaging as unappealing as possible. And they came up with this Pantone shade, which you could call baby poop. It's kind of a, a brownish green. But then I read an article saying, oh, but this is in the Mona Lisa. Like, how can you say this is such an ugly color? There it is in the Mona Lisa. So I went around the mat saying like, can I find this color? Yeah, I found that color. Because it's a part of what you need that color to make the beauty and dissonance and music often makes things more beautiful and more memorable and more more striking. Yeah. So it was it was one of the insights that I got through boredom was that the beautiful often requires a bit of ugly. I love that sentiment because I think we are sort of engineered to only want pleasure in a very simple contract, right? That it has to be sweet all the time. Like we, we miss the complexity that's actually more appealing. The other thing that I thought was an under a really interesting undertone, you were talking about it primarily in the chapter on scent, but that these things are fleeting and ephemeral, right? Like we hit, we get that hit of perfume and then it fades because we're used to it. And it seems that way with sort of all senses, right? Otherwise we'd be overwhelmed but it's right, yeah. so sad, it, it, right? Well, it's interesting because really what it, the the brain is a difference detector. What it's trying to figure out is what's different because that's what that's could be danger and that could be opportunity. So like a rock hurtling toward you is something you need to pay attention to. The rock sitting on the ground is not something that needs to catch your attention. So we pick up things right away, but then they fade out of our awareness. And I think you're right. I think one of the one of the challenges is to awaken our awareness of things that can kind of fade into the the background wallpaper. And for me, this was particularly important with people. Like, you know, throughout the book, I talk about really how my senses made me closer to people, to memories of people and to connecting with people in the present and forming memories for the future. And I realized like, you know, who do I look at more than my husband? But like, do I, did I, was I really seeing him? Was I really seeing what he looked like? Was I, really paying attention. And when I started really paying attention, I noticed all kinds of things. And what I found too, is that when I paid attention to the outer Jamie, I got insight into the inner Jamie because there were all these clues in plain sight, but that I just hadn't been picking up on because I was like, Oh, I don't need, I don't need to look at you. I I look at you every day. 
So I think I think that that's that we want to awaken that appreciation and even that sense of wonder for the things that are the most familiar. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's beautiful. It's just it's like, yeah, noticing what's in front of us. It's actually not that complex, but for whatever reason, those those easy things are always so difficult or those simple things are hard. Well, one of the things I it's interesting because I talked about this on my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and people put an interesting twist on it. So my idea, which I wrote about in the book, which is I did a five senses portrait of Jamie. So for each of the five senses, I wrote five very strong associations or memories I had, you know, so like for touch, it was like the springy hair on his head or, or whatever, you know, some from the past, some from the present. This was really creative, really fun, took a while. Like some come right away, some it takes a while to think of them. And it was so fun to do. So I did it. And then when I turned in the book, my editor said to me, well, I think for your about section, you should write a five portrait, five senses portrait of yourself. And I thought, oh, I just did this whole book about the five senses. But even that, that was still very challenging for me. I had never thought of myself like in that structure. So that was sort of an interesting creative thing. Then when we talked about it on the Happier podcast, one listener said, oh, I'm going to do this for my grandparents because they've recently died and I want to hang on to those very concrete memories of them. And I also want to be able to give it to my children who are so young, they won't remember these family members. And then somebody else did it as a gift, wrote it and gave it as a gift because she said, what's going to make you feel more seen and heard and smelled and tasted and touched than somebody writing a five senses portrait of you? So, and I think, I think that's a lovely idea. So yeah. it's, it's like, there are all different ways that you can play with these things. And, and I, and my hope is that it will get people fired up for their own five senses. It's like, I did this, but you could do that. Like, I'm not that into music, but maybe you're really into music. Like, it's just, it's just, it's so fun and energizing and it's so playful and it's just right there. It's all around us. If we reach out for it, I, I just think, you know, you want to tap into it if you can. Gretchen's book, her latest, Life in Five Senses, is really about the power not only of noticing, but then appreciating. And it's hard to do when we're in constant overwhelm and all of our senses are indulged probably too much. And then in some ways, I think that that overindulgence causes us to detach from all of these pleasure centers, from we start to not pay attention anymore. She writes, and this is so true, it was a constant challenge to notice. An artist, Scott Pollock's applause and courage, number 111415, guests watched the sunset over the ocean, then applauded. In my own life, how could I maintain the discipline of noticing? A friend once told me, after my trip to India, I had no doubt that I was going to cook with cumin all the time, but I don't. I knew exactly what he meant. It was easier to feel transformed than to be transformed. I wanted to maintain my focus on my five senses as I moved onward into the future. Before I'd started my investigation, though I hadn't realized it, I'd been doing a lot of looking and not enough listening. Now I was tuning in to each of my five senses. I'd also learned how much power I had to design my environment. To add pleasure, I could wear perfume to bed, visit a museum every day, and pet Barnaby's silky ears. When I walked closer to a jasmine vine, the fragrance gave me a hit of pleasure so intense that it seemed to lift me off the ground. To reduce annoyances, I could turn off my phone notifications, give away a scratchy pair of pants, or fix a wobbly chair. Instead of reusing that smelly, worn kitchen sponge one more time, I could replace it with a new one. That's what I love about Gretchen. She takes such big ideas and then distills them into simple ideas. Like, hey, it's time for a new kitchen sponge. And on that note, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, 
and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout-out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. Thank you.